Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Mildred Harnack and the German Resistance Red Orchestra Spy Ring. Now let's begin our story about Mildred Harnack. Mildred Fish Harnack was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on September 16, 1902. Her parents, descended from a New England Protestant background, separated when Mildred was a teenager and she was primarily raised by her mother. After her father's death in 1918, the family relocated to the Washington, D.C. area, but Mildred returned in 1921 to attend the University of Wisconsin. While a student at the university, Mildred met a German Rockefeller scholar, Arvid Harnack, in 1926. In September, they were married, and Mildred continued with her studies and taught literature. Having been immersed as a youngster in the deeply German immigrant culture of Milwaukee and subsequently exposed to the radical political atmosphere of Madison, Mildred's attraction to a German intellectual would be completely predictable. From the very beginning, the Harnack's marriage was atypical. Although Harnack's uncle was the esteemed German theologian Adolf von Harnack, Arvid's father also died when he was a teenager, and his immediate family was struggling with the disastrous German economy of the 20s. When Harnack's academic stipend ran out in 1928, he was forced to return to Germany. Mildred Harnack obtained a teaching position at Goucher College in Baltimore, and the young couple hoped to reunite quickly. After a year in Baltimore, Mildred joined her husband and his family in Jena, Germany. Here they both pursued their education, living modestly as graduate students. They interacted with their cousins, the Bonhoeffers and the Delbrooks, also members of respected German academic families. In 1930, Arvid got a job as a small-town administrative lawyer. Mildred worked and studied as an instructor at the University of Berlin. Alone during the week, Mildred viewed firsthand the brutal economic conditions and political turmoil in the German capital. The centrist political elements of German political society were collapsing along with the country's capitalist economic foundation. The resulting struggle for the future of the country would be played out between fascism and Marxism. In Germany, that meant either embracing Hitler and the Nazis or siding with the more intellectually appealing German communist movement. With the excesses of Stalinist communism still unknown in Western Europe, the Soviet Union was still perceived as a utopian ideal in its first stages of development. To idealists like Mildred and Arvid Harnack, communism was the only obstacle to a complete takeover by Hitler. Arvid studied the Russian economic model as an alternative to the bankrupt German economy and helped found Our Plan, a group of academics that met regularly to analyze the Soviet economy. Inevitably, through this organization, the Harnacks would meet and socialize with members of the Soviet government. In May 1932, Mildred's teaching position at the University of Berlin was not renewed. The combination of a poor economy, her foreign female status, and her leftist political bent 
were all probably factors in this decision. In the summer of 1932, both Harnacks separately traveled to the Soviet Union, Arvid with members of his R-Plan group. It is alleged, although never completely substantiated, that Arvid Harnack was recruited at this time as a Soviet intelligence agent. Mildred began teaching that fall at a night school designed for adults who wished to complete their high school education and continue on to a university. Not as prestigious as a university position, she was still grateful to be working anywhere in such uncertain times. Arvid Harnack was also about to publish a book about Soviet central economic planning. These developments were overshadowed by the volatile German political situation. In November's national parliamentary elections, the Communist Party won a resounding victory. This so alarmed the centrist elements of the patchwork coalition governing Germany that they threw their lot in with Hitler. Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, the ancient figurehead president of the Republic, named Hitler Chancellor the second most powerful governmental position. A month later, on February 27, 1933, the German parliament building, the Reichstag, was set on fire. The following day, Hitler used this incident as a pretext to issue the Reichstag fire decree, which the veritably senile von Hindenburg signed into law. This edict essentially suspended the civil liberties of the population and was used by Hitler's followers to jail and attack any member of the political opposition. The first concentration camp for political prisoners rounded up after the fire decree was established 12 miles outside of Munich at Dachau on March 21, 1933. On March 23rd, the Nazis jammed the Enabling Act through the Reichstag, effectively allowing the cabinet to make governmental decisions without the Reichstag's approval. Hitler had taken virtual control of the government through completely legal maneuvering. When von Hindenburg died in August of 1934, this de facto status became official. The ascendance of the Nazi party in Germany had specific consequences for the Harnacks. Our plan was quickly disbanded and many of its members fled the country. Some of the remaining academics involved in the organization were harassed by the SS and fired from their jobs. Arvid Harnack wisely decided not to publish his manuscript, as any topic involving the Soviet Union would have generated dangerous official scrutiny. He and Mildred left central Berlin, and Arvid eked out a living as a lawyer working with his cousin, Klaus Bonhoeffer. Mildred was forced to join the National Socialist Teachers Organization to retain her post at the night school. One bright spot in Mildred's life was her interaction within the small, close-knit group of expatriate Americans through various organizations. She met and befriended Martha Dodd, the daughter of the American ambassador to Germany. Together, they wrote a regular column consisting of book reviews for Berlin Topics, an English-language newspaper in the city. To friends, Mildred would also confide that she and her husband's uncertain future precluded having children. Through Martha Dodd and various other literary circles that she frequented, Mildred also began to cultivate some very valuable publishing connections. At an American embassy function, she met the American writer Thomas Wolfe, which produced several of the most insightful interviews Wolfe ever gave. Mildred translated Irving Stone's historical novel, Lust for Life, and Walter Edmonds' Drums Along the Mohawk. Even today, the German versions of both of these books are Mildred Harnack's versions and she did freelance work for German publishers scouting English-language books that would be worthy of publication. 
her literary criticism was published in several prestigious German literary journals of the period. But by 1935, all aspects of publishing were heavily regulated by the German government, and Mildred's opportunities for criticism or journalism dried up. Luckily, Arvid Harnack was able to complete the process necessary to secure a position within the German Ministry of Economics. Any realistic chance to keep such a job required membership in the Nazi party, which Arvid joined in May of 1935. In August, he would be recontacted by members of the Soviet embassy, interested in cultivating him as a source of information. Arvid's new position came at a fortuitous time as the Nazis shut down Mildred's night school, leaving her without any steady income. In 1937, Mildred would travel back to the United States. Her mother was in poor health and living in Milwaukee with Mildred's sister. Mildred would also put together a lecture tour of several American universities, including NYU, Haverford College, Wisconsin, and the University of Chicago. The topic, the German relation to current American literature, was clearly meant to showcase Mildred as an academic lecturer and to potentially drum up a faculty position. She also telephoned Thomas Wolfe and met with his legendary editor, Maxwell Perkins, in the hopes of getting a manuscript concerning American literature off of the ground. Nothing came of any of these endeavors, and despite her family's determination to get her to leave Germany, she returned after a lengthy stay in the U.S. Friends and relatives found her to be much more guarded, tense, and preoccupied, which was certainly predictable under the circumstances. If she stayed in the United States, she would have had to leave her husband behind, an eventuality that she was not prepared to face. When she returned to Germany in the spring of 1937, almost all of her non-diplomatic American friends had left the country. Martha Dodd's father had been reassigned in 1937, and his daughter returned to the United States with him. Ultimately, Martha Dodd would be accused of espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union and would flee the U.S. in 1957. Ambassador Dodd's tenure had been a disaster for the American diplomatic effort, and a general shakeup brought a new first secretary, Donald Heath, to Berlin. Heath was especially intent on getting details about the economic aspects of the German government, and through his wife's involvement with the American Women's Club, he met both Mildred and Arvid Harnack. Arvid became a valuable source of information. Increasingly, both of the Harnacks became more intent on activities that underlined their opposition to the Nazi government. They discreetly were able to secure visas for Jews and other associates who typically would not have been able to leave the country. They translated American journalism, including speeches by President Roosevelt, into German and distributed this information among their social circle. Within that circle, they began to try to identify others who were as adamantly opposed to Hitler's regime. Their search for such individuals would result in a fateful introduction in 1940 to Harrow and Libertas Schulze-Boysen. This meeting was the result of Mildred's friendship with Greta Kuckoff, a woman she had known as a German exchange student at the University of Wisconsin. Greta's husband, Adam, worked in the German film business. Libertas worked as a film writer in the propaganda ministry. Harrow was a lieutenant in the Luftwaffe and worked at the Air Ministry. Like Arvid, Harris Schulze-Boysen had access to valuable information, including extremely sensitive military intelligence. Despite their prominent governmental positions and aristocratic backgrounds, 
The Schulze-Boysons were nonconformists and ardent anti-Nazis. In the early 30s, Harrow had actually published a left-leaning political journal and was arrested twice by the SS. He was released through the intercession of his well-connected father, who had served prominently in the German Navy and was a nephew of Admiral Tirpitz. Schulze Boysen was encouraged to channel his energies in a more constructive direction, and he subsequently applied and was accepted to the Luftwaffe, where he wound up on the intelligence staff. This prestigious position, with access to Hermann Goering, was as much the result of his wife's even more prominent social connections. Her grandfather was Prince Philip zu Eulenburg Hertefeld, a literal member of the Prussian Junker class, and Goering routinely took part in hunting outings on the family estate. Harrow's career within the Luftwaffe substantially accelerated after Libertas, a stunningly beautiful woman, socialized with the Reichsmarschall at one of these outings. While the Schulze-Boysens were involved in activities like leafleting and discussion groups, the Harnacks, especially Arvid, were more interested in gathering valuable information and conveying it into the right hands. As late as mid-1939, Arvid Harnack officially traveled to the United States, ostensibly to secure raw materials like copper and aluminum. His status as an economic specialist on German industrial assets in the United States and his party membership would have allowed for such a visit. Secretly, he met with the members of the American government, telling them that war was imminent and that appeasing Hitler was a dangerous course of action. Harnack was not the only German transmitting this ominous message to the West, but he got the same skeptical reaction that American and British intelligence services exhibited elsewhere. How could a member of the Nazi party and a respected official traveling outside of Germany be able to leave the country if he wasn't a spy spreading disinformation? Harnack's warnings were ignored. In fact, so well cultivated was Arvid Harnack's cover that it was not until after the war that some of Mildred's American relatives learned that he was anything but a committed Nazi. In 1939, understanding that war was unavoidable, the Harnacks also contemplated relocating to the United States. Mildred applied for both Guggenheim and Rockefeller scholarships. Arvid also used academic contacts who had also been fortunate enough to leave Germany for the U.S. in an attempt to get a Rockefeller appointment. Neither of these efforts succeeded, although Arvid purchased a steamship ticket to the U.S. for Mildred that she could use at any time, she refused to leave Germany, even after the U.S. Embassy urged all Americans to leave the country. She would not return to the U.S. without her husband. At least Mildred was able to finish her doctorate in 1939, quite an achievement in an environment that was now completely alien to academic scholarship. The Harnacks observed the Munich Agreement between Chamberlain and Hitler and the Soviet-German non-aggression pact with dread. Stalin's alliance with Hitler was viewed throughout the German leftist community initially as a stunning betrayal, but ultimately as a crafty move to buy time before an inevitable military struggle. They were completely blinded to both the reality of Stalinist real politic and Stalin's paranoia concerning Western democracies. Hitler's invasion of Poland and the onset of World War II altered the German resistance. The success of the Wehrmacht meant that only the German military could realistically overthrow the government. Nevertheless, Arvid Harnack continued with direct contacts with Soviet intelligence beginning in September of 1940. Almost a year before it occurred, Harnack gave his handlers completely accurate information about the planning and objectives of the Nazi offensive against the Soviet Union. Undoubtedly, Arvid was supplementing his own intelligence with details passed on by Schulze Boysen who had been transferred to the Luftwaffe sector involved in the actual planning of the attack. Ultimately, Solzhenitsyn, via Harnack, 
would meet individually with Soviet intelligence himself throughout early 1941, providing even more specific information about German objectives, strategy, and Luftwaffe logistics. Some of this information even reached Stalin himself, who unfortunately decided early on that the voluminous data describing an imminent Nazi invasion was all a clever disinformation operation masterminded by Great Britain and the U.S. Stalin believed that the West was frightened by any Soviet-German alliance and would do anything to sabotage this political union. He treated any analysis of an impending German invasion with utter disdain. In April 1941, Soviet intelligence asked Arvid Harnack to communicate with Moscow via radio transmitter receiver. An extremely dangerous escalation of illegal activity, Harnack agreed only if the radio was stored elsewhere. Both Mildred and Arvid also began to expand their clandestine resistance activity within Germany, focusing mostly on distributing leaflets, publishing newspapers, and contacting other resistance groups within Germany. In fact, Falk Harnack would be arrested and tried with several members of the White Rose. All of his co-defendants were convicted and executed, while Falk Harnack was released, possibly to lead the Gestapo to other resistance members. Libertas Schulze-Boysen was in the unique position of having access to film footage that was used by the propaganda ministry. She was able to produce photographic copies of atrocities that were being committed against Jews and others on the Eastern Front. Unsuccessful attempts were made to get this information to the West. Haro Schulze-Boysen went so far as to organize a group to paste over handbills advertising the Soviet paradise, a Nazi propaganda spectacle coinciding with the Nazi invasion mocking life in the Soviet Union. Such public expression was extremely hazardous and was avoided by both Mildred and Arvid Harnack as an unnecessarily provocative risk. When the inevitable Operation Barbarossa began on June 25, 1941, any ability to communicate directly with Soviet diplomats disappeared. Two Soviet transmission devices had been already delivered, but members of the Harnack group could never properly establish contact with Moscow. Desperate to regain access to information directly from sources on the ground in Berlin, high-level Soviet intelligence contacted Soviet agents operating successfully in Brussels. In their messages, they advised that direct contact should be made to reconnect with the Harnack schulze boysen group. They also committed the unforgivable intelligence blunder of including addresses for both Adam Kukov and Harold schulze boysen The messages were encrypted, but this amazingly reckless directive would have disastrous consequences. A Soviet agent, Anatoly Gurevich, did reestablish ties by directly visiting Harrow and Libertas Schulze-Boysen in November 1941, gleaning extremely valuable intelligence. He also received information that came from Mildred and Arvid Harnack. Unfortunately, he had so much material that upon his return to Brussels, he made the additional mistake of transmitting daily at a predictable time for many hours. German intelligence units routinely intercepted such transmissions, and the sloppy technique allowed them to electronically determine the precise location of the transmitter. Gurevich and his entire Brussels operation were compromised and its participants arrested, including his radio operator. It would take German cryptographers six months, but eventually they would decipher the partially burned records seized in the Brussels arrest and the messages that they had intercepted themselves, including transmissions containing the addresses of the conspirators. In classic counterintelligence tradecraft, Abwehr and police operatives waited hoping to observe their subjects interacting with other as yet unidentified members of the resistance network. By August of 1942, 
dozens of suspected individuals were under surveillance. In late August, a stunning coincidence forced the Gestapo to spring the trap. Horst Heilmann, a young member of this German cryptology unit, was also a former student of Harris Schulze-Boysen and regularly socialized with the couple. After Harrow confided that he worked with Russian intelligence, Heilman mentioned that his group had successfully intercepted some communications and identified some Russian agents. When Heilman returned to his office and reviewed decoded messages, he determined that the Schulze-Boysens had been compromised. He unsuccessfully attempted to telephone Harrow and was forced to leave an urgent message. Later, when Harrow returned the call, instead of Heilman, he got a senior colleague on the line. Confused by the cryptic message he had received, he unfortunately identified himself. Heilman's stunned colleague figured out what had happened and immediately informed the secret police. The Gestapo did not want to risk further warnings to other members of the group, and Harrow Schulze-Boysen was arrested on August 31, 1942. The Harnacks had made plans to spend a two-week summer vacation with another couple at the tiny seaside village of Pryl near Konigsberg. They were arrested there in front of their shocked friends on September 7, 1942. In all, over a hundred suspects would be apprehended, comprising the group that the Gestapo dubbed the Rota Capella, the Red Orchestra in German. Red denoting ties to the Soviet Union, orchestra the standard German intelligence name for a clandestine radio network. Libertas Schulze-Boysen did receive a warning, but only got as far as a southbound train. Of the many seized, Arvid and Mildred Harnack, Adam Kuckoff, and Harrow and Libertas Schulze-Boysen would remain in Gestapo headquarters in solitary confinement in the forbidding building's basement. Clearly perceived as the ringleaders of the group, their interrogation would last for many harrowing days. Mildred was forbidden visitors and could not communicate with any members of her friends or family. Arvid was visited twice by his brother, Falk, who was doing everything possible to try and get him and Mildred released. Arvid told him that he appreciated the effort, but realistically he was wasting his time. He also told him that he had been tortured. Revelations concerning the Red Orchestra rocked the Nazi hierarchy. Because the group consisted of some of the most educated and prominent members of German society, the affair was a stunning bookend to the ongoing crisis in Russia. Schulze-Boysen's affiliation with the air ministry was a personal embarrassment to Goering, his interaction with the aristocratic family well known throughout the regime. On several days of interrogation, Himmler personally participated and monitored progress on the investigation through his direct subordinate, Berlin Gestapo head Heinrich Muller. Possibly as an official rationalization for the utter failure on the Eastern Front, the conspirators involved in the Red Orchestra were now being blamed for the catastrophe at Stalingrad. Admiral Canaris, the head of Obwehr, later testified during the judicial prosecution that the Red Orchestra had been responsible for the deaths of 200,000 soldiers. The perceived treachery of the conspirators, some with military backgrounds, dictated that judicial proceedings would take place in front of the Reich court-martial instead of the civilian people's court. Sentences handed down from this body had to be reviewed by a senior military commander, and the perceived severity of this proceeding instigated sentence confirmation personally by Adolf Hitler. This turn of events would have dire consequences for Mildred Harnack. 
The trials of the first Red Orchestra defendants began on Tuesday, December 15, 1942. This travesty entailed having a defendant listen to a written indictment, answering perfunctory questions, and then being escorted from the room as witnesses for the prosecution, usually officials from the Gestapo, read lengthy dossiers detailing the specific criminal behavior of each defendant. No witnesses were presented for the defense. The defense attorney could not refute any of the testimony, raise the issue of torture, or even advise his client. At least Mildred could remain in the courtroom after testimony about her case was delivered in proximity to her husband. Breaks were spent collectively with all of the defendants in a waiting room. It would be the last time they would see each other. On December 19th, 10 of the defendants, including Arvid Harnack, Libertas and Haro Schulze-Boitzen, and 19-year-old Horst Heilman, were convicted of espionage and high treason and sentenced to death. Mildred Harnack received a six-year sentence, and another defendant, Erika von Brockdorf, whose only crime consisted of perhaps unwittingly storing one of the wireless transmitters, received 10 years. One of the more disturbing aspects of the justice system of the Third Reich was the malevolent speed in which sentences were carried out. In the case of the Red Orchestra, vengeance was especially swift. On December 21st, Hitler and Field Marshal Keitel signed a document officially certifying the death sentences. Appeals or issues of clemency were non-existence. One day later, the executions would take place at Plotzensee Prison, the execution chamber of the Judicial District of Berlin. Five of the defendants, including Harro Schulze-Boitzen and Arvid Harnack, would be subjected to an especially gruesome form of execution, strangulation by thin rope suspended from a metal hook. This would be the first time that this method, ordered personally by Hitler, would be implemented. It would continue until the end of the war, especially for defendants convicted of involvement in the July 20th conspiracy to assassinate Hitler in his East Prussian HQ. For the female and some of the younger male condemned, the typical and officially perceived more merciful method of execution, reintroduced by the Nazi government in 1933, would be implemented. Death by guillotine. On the evening of December 22nd, the executions were carried out. Forbidden to meet with Mildred, Arvid Harnack was allowed to write a final letter to his family, a simple note that concluded with the phrase, I pray to the power of love. He must have been heartened in his belief that his beloved wife would survive this ordeal. Unfortunately, that was not to be. Although Hitler was quite prompt in signing off on the death penalty, he refused to endorse prison sentences for the two female defendants. Goering was also outraged by the prospect of jail terms in the matter. Both Mildred Harnack and Erika von Brockdorf would be retried. The prosecutor, Manfred Röder, a member of the Luftwaffe Legal Division, fully understood what the expected outcome should be. He immediately refiled the charges and officially informed both defendants that they would be retried. The process bordered on the preposterous, as the prosecution had to literally contradict its initial proceeding and justify an outcome that was a foregone conclusion. By January 13th, the second trial was already underway. Basically, the prosecution presented evidence that Mildred was much more greatly responsible than first perceived. They also claimed that she engaged in an adulterous affair with another defendant to extract information a charge that is still unsubstantiated, but was frequently used by the Gestapo against female members of the Red Orchestra to smear and humiliate them publicly. Mildred was again found guilty. This time, the sentence was death. She was returned to her prison cell at the women's prison in Charlottenburg. After the war, when the death of the Harnacks was publicized, several individuals contacted the Harnack family with information about Mildred and her last days. 
Observed in the exercise yard, but segregated from the rest of the prisoners because of her condemned status, she was sickly and frail, possibly tubercular, practically unable to stand, much less walk. Her once lovely blonde hair gone completely white. One inmate, Gertrude Liechtenstein, related that after a botched suicide attempt, Mildred was allowed a cellmate, presumably to prevent such behavior. Gertrude spent a month with Mildred before being sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, and when she left, Mildred gave her the last letter written to her on December 14, 1942, by Arvid Harnack. In part, it read, Despite everything, I look gladly on my life. The darkness was outweighed by the light, and this is largely because of our marriage. Last night, I recalled many of the beautiful moments we shared, and the more I did this, the more I recalled. It was like looking at a starry sky, wherein the number of stars grows the more closely one looks. Do you remember the picnic point when we became engaged? And before that, do you remember our first serious discussion at lunch in the restaurant on State Street? That conversation became my guiding star, and so it has remained. How often during the 16 years that followed did I lay your head on mine at night when life had made us weary, and then everything was all right? In my thoughts, I have done this during the past weeks and will do it again in those to come. Knowing the probable outcome of her upcoming trial, Mildred presumed that most likely the letter would be destroyed. Having read it so many times, it was already virtually illegible. She hoped that Gertrude might be able to preserve it at least for a short while longer. Gertrude Liechtenstein survived Ravensbrück and was able to return Arvid's letter to the Harnack family. Approximately a month later, on the night of February 15, 1943, Mildred Harnack was transported to Plotzensee Prison. Once there, she was told that no final appeal was possible and to prepare for her execution. Following the war, not one of the members of the German judiciary or legal establishment was ever prosecuted for their conduct during the Third Reich. When Manfred Roerder was exonerated by the Allies, his investigation at the hands of the West German government turned into a whitewash. The Red Orchestra was uniformly branded as a bunch of communist traitors who aided the enemy in a time of war. This perspective and the belief that Mildred and Arvid Harnack were communist spies became prevalent in the CIA and ultimately within the American government. In 1948, when University of Wisconsin officials contacted their senior senator to demand an investigation of what happened to Mildred Harnack, he quietly responded that she was in all likelihood executed as a Russian intelligence agent. Even her own family, with members working for the U.S. government, was alarmed by the potential consequences of a public investigation. Over time, the only American female executed for espionage on the express orders of Adolf Hitler vanished into the fog of the Cold War. We know something of how Mildred Harnack spent her last hours because of the presence of a rather remarkable individual, the Protestant chaplain at the prison, Harold Polchow. Polchow wrote of his experience ministering to the condemned prisoners of Plotzensee in a memoir published in the late 40s. When he entered Mildred Harnack's cell on the last day of her life, she was translating a Goethe poem into English. They talked about literature. He told her that he had been present at her husband's execution, that Arvid had died bravely, and of her husband's last wish that she should be happy when she thought of him. The chaplain gave her family photographs that he had gotten past the authorities, as well as an orange, a gift from her sister-in-law. Polchow lent her a Bible and, upon leaving, shook her hands warmly. Although he had witnessed hundreds of such proceedings over the years, he would not be present at Mildred's execution. Still, he knew the routine. Without warning, a trustee would enter her cell, cut her hair to facilitate the guillotine, and shackle her hands behind her back. 
Her shoes would be removed and be replaced with cumbersome wooden prison footwear. From there, she would walk with two guards, exiting from the first floor of the prison and across a small enclosure to the prison shed where executions took place. Inside the small building, several officials would be seated at a table, a black curtain bisecting the sparse chamber. After some brief formalities and the recitation of her death sentence, the executioner, dressed formally in gloves, suit coat, and a top hat, would rapidly draw the curtain dividing the room. Although she might not have comprehended the purpose of the long steel bar with attached hooks where her husband had met his fate, Mildred Harnack must have been terribly frightened and bewildered by the sight of the guillotine in the rear corner. She was far, far away from the green bucolic pasture lands of her native Wisconsin. Years later, Harold Polchow would still be haunted by her final words to him, and I had loved Germany so very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Resisting Hitler by Shireen Blair Brysack, The Red Orchestra by Ann Nelson, and In the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson. For information on how to access this material and for additional podcasts, please visit my website at someveryfamouspeople.com. Thank you.